I'm Elizabeth Vincentilli. I write for the New York Times, the New Yorker, and Newsday. I'm Terry Teachout, drama critic of the Wall Street Journal. And I'm Peter Marks, theater critic of the Washington Post. Welcome to episode 42 of Three on the Isle, a twice-monthly podcast from New York about theater in America. We're hosted by American Theater Magazine, a publication of the Theater Communications Group. Well, for the first time ever in 42 episodes of Three on the Isle, 42 episodes, our guest is a colleague who also uh, just published a book. And we're talking, uh, in this case, about Alexandra Jacobs, author of a new biography of Elaine Stritch, uh, later in the program. And first we're going to start with just a few minutes, uh, very, very few minutes on a almost seven hour, <laughs> seven hour long play, right. which is the talk of the town. It's after being the talk of the London town, uh, and it's the inheritance. And we're, we're going to dedicate a little bit of time to it because, um, again, it's getting a lot of, of, of buzz. It's very long. It's very ambitious. By Matthew Lopez. By Matthew Lopez, um, a previously author of The Whipping Man, which actually does very well all over. Yeah. Uh, it was one of the most produced plays in the U.S. like a few right. seasons ago. Right, Civil and, War play. And The Legend of Georgia McBride. Um, the Inheritance just opened in New York after a very successful run uh, in London in the West End, uh, and the production uh, share lead one actors. Olivier's, one Olivier's. Yeah, it, incredibly successful. Uh, it's pretty much the same production. Uh, the actors came from the West End, uh, although the leads are all American. They were American who had gone to the West End, so it's not like we're getting a British cast. And the director is the same as uh, Stephen Daldry. Uh, and as I said, it's very long, uh, two installments of about over three hours each. Uh, and I want to specify, but that's something that really bugs me, is that you have to buy tickets for both parts separately, and it's not like you, you're not getting a discount or anything if you buy both parts. It's really expensive yeah. to see this show. Right. Because that's the true. tickets like, are Broadway prices right. twice. Right. Uh, I, I just find this really unconscionable. Uh, like the price of this thing is ridiculous. Yeah, each one the price ranges from like there are you know there's some tickets for you know 30, 40, 39 to forty nine dollars, but the top price is three forty nine, and most are obviously in the one seventy five. Well, that's premium, range. but like the right. the top regular price right. price is one ninety nine. Right. So you have so to spend. I, if, it's it's almost a thousand bucks for two people to it's go. It's crazy. Right. I I really do find that unconscionable. Yeah, yeah, it is uh, ridiculous. It's, it's really offensive. That's a very good point that you don't get a discount no, for the second I, one. No, I I really think you should. But actually, what I would say is like don't bother with the second part right. because for me the first part is very self-contained and it's all you need to see and, and I know people well, are going to scream tell them about what it's about tell them what it's about oh right <laughs> oh god oh okay god that detail <laughs> easier said than done just a you're little. so earthbound Peter I just want to like set it up for the people out there who aren't going to go see it or aren't seeing it the inheritance is very uh, loosely inspired by Howard's End the Foster novel, and it's about uh, a generation of uh, gay men in New York in their early 30s, and the way they are dealing with the, the history of the gay community, uh, reaching all the way back to Foster himself, but more recently with the AIDS epidemic of the 80s and 90s. Uh, and it's about how those young gay men are facing that past, or, or not. Uh, it's a very sprawling, very ambitious. So I salute the ambition. It's mm -hmm. that absolutely undisputable. Uh, this is someone who's thinking big, mm -hmm. but it's also someone who's maybe a little indulgent with what he thinks we need to see. Th there was absolutely no need for this to be almost seven hours long. No, I think it could be much shorter. And I think that the problem for me is that this is the quintessential example of a play that tells rather than showing. It is structured very much like a novel with an enormous amount of narration of, of indirect description of what is going on. The description is repetitious. And it is brilliantly staged by Stephen Daldry and you really appreciate that when you look at the script because what you find is that of the moments staying in your mind as show scenes instead of tell scenes, especially at the end of the first half. They are essentially the creation of staging. Mm -hmm. 
there is very little guidance from the author in terms of dialogue, in terms of stage directions. This is a play about people talking <laughs> and telling you what you're about to see and what you've just seen. And to me, I mean, there are a lot of different ways to write a play. I don't want to say that you can't write a play that way. Just the other day, I was talking about Molly Sweeney, which is a play in which people are talking about things that they saw and experienced. But this is a six and a half hour long play going on seven hours. And that's a lot of talking and not very much showing. And I must say, for me, that's antithetical to what theater really is in its essence. Well, I, I would say also, you know, I mean, we should also say this was this has arrived in New York on Broadway as kind of a showpiece event. We're yeah. supposed to think that this is kind of a prestige production occupying that kind of potentially snob hit category that everyone feels like they have to go because it's going to garner all the prizes. Right. That's sort of how it's rolled out. And... The problem for me was that it didn't, I didn't think that beyond sort of by reflection on this earlier tragedy of trying to remind us of what happened to a generation of men now gone, uh, that we were supposed to feel something and that that sort of provided the emotional sort of foundation for being involved in the lives of these younger men who were not necessarily as focused on what the significance of the sacrifice that came before them was. And the problem for me, the essential problem was, frankly, was I never felt that involved in the lives of the two men around whom most of the events occur over the course of six and a half hours, essentially. And that's really a problem to me for an epic, because at the center of this thing, it didn't feel like they were necessarily uninteresting characters. It's just that I didn't really look forward to living with both of them. One of them, a writer who is a very troubled uh, young man who is the younger, um, well, I guess they're about the same age, I don't remember, of, the, of, a, of a much more altruistic young gay man who's a social activist. And the way their lives divide and come back together is sort of the road that we, we go down and with And you them. notice they don't do anything interesting. Right. I mean, who wants to who wants to watch a play about a writer? That's really tricky. And the other guy... <laughs> well, there were like almost like a Jacqueline Suzanne aspect right. to and, it. And the I other mean, guy, you know, why that. are we interested in him? Because he has an apartment. <laughs> you know, it's, right. it's just... It, they are not engaging properly for a play of this specific gravity. And somehow, you know, that, you know, it did, it was definitely trying to reference Angels in America in terms of the kind of textures it was sort of exploring and the kind of storytelling that it wanted to bring to the, us and the, and the heft of that. But, you know, those characters, Pryor, Walter, and Lewis, were the, at the center of the were were inordinately complex and interesting and got more well, I thought had and angels more. you know I, I have a million problems with that play but it's always a play mm -hmm. it's always showing telling is secondary even though the telling is often very quite eloquent but it's always a play it's not a visualized novel. I, I actually this I, I I don't really agree. I, I think this is a, a play, a real play, and and thank God for Stephen Daldry actually for the director. Amen. He's the one who makes it a play. So okay, maybe I just contradicted myself, uh, but uh, I think a huge difference with uh, so, as Peter mentioned, it's I mean it's been compared to Angels in America a lot, and and for good reason. But a huge difference. Well, there's many differences, but right. uh, one of them is that. Angels in America has a very, very broad vision of gay men in a society outside of them. Right. And politics outside of them. This one does not. And it, it feels very narcissistic in a way that I, that made me a little uncomfortable. Interesting word. I would have said claustrophobic. Narcissistic or may maybe navel-gazing. Narcissistic is a little too strong. Uh, I would say navel-gazing. One of the characters' big issue at one point <laughs> is that this Republican billionaire asks him to marry him, and he doesn't even have to have sex with him. We had a huge argument between during the break between the plays because I said, well, if a billionaire, if a Republican billionaire wanted to marry me, I would say yes <laughs> because I would be using the money for good. You yeah. know? Yeah, that and whole, yeah. my friends were appalled. They right. were like, how could you do that? And I was like, well, 
okay, well, this is a what if scenario. We're not talking about real life here. It's completely hypothetical. I didn't buy that whole relationship, though. No. I didn't buy it. This guy's problem is that a billionaire wants to marry him. Right. I mean, I okay. Uh, the, the, the other thing was, you know, it... Take the money and use it to fund, you know, like a good Charles Koch. I thought there, you know, I actually thought there's a, a, there's a secondary character, a, a black gay man, in this, I think it's probably in the second part who reveals that he's going to leave the country oh, and right. he's a doctor he's, he's applied to move to uh, Canada mm-hmm. and I thought you know okay now there's, a, there's mm-hmm. something here it's connecting to something outside like to and there's someone yes. who's really under threat for whom it hasn't changed the country hasn't changed since uh, the 80s in fact it's just as threatening as it was my god now we gotta play this, you know, he mentions it in one scene, and then we're back. You know, it, 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 otherwise it's flashbacks, and it's a beautiful speech that Paul Hilton gives as Walter, the older man who who tells the story. I mean, it's a wonderful twenty-minute monologue. That I mean, it's a beautiful speech, but it doesn't connect to what these, what we're supposed to feel about this, uh, that that word, the stakes for these two young men who are making their way in the world today, and how? Why is that supposed to be interesting to me? Why is that supposed to hold me when I'm not really sure there's anything that they can't fix themselves by a, you know, therapy? Uh, Admittedly, none of us around this table is a gay man. But at the same time, I don't think art should be understood only by the constituency that is depicted in it. Mm. It would be incredibly just stifling. I I found that thought so depressing. like I'm not a I'm not a gay Mormon and and I could right. completely feel what's going on in Angels. You well, know what I mean? It. It's a completely different well, of course. thing. I mean, you know, you can watch Jitney and watch you know have you know they're the lives of you know ten cab drivers in Pittsburgh in the '60s, right? And you can feel for every one of those lives and under and and feel like you were living. August Wilson is the yeah, master I mean, of that. My it's problems a, with this play were not its subject matter; they were its structure, right. its way of telling the story. Right, and right, I think right. that. If he had dropped the blade at the end of the first half, that extraordinary tableau, essentially created by Daldry, but nonetheless striking for that, of, of, of a generation of young gay men reaching out to one another and creating a sense of community, we would be having a very different conversation now. We'd be saying, well, you know, this play has certain problems, it's flawed, but it's immensely promising and it's ambitious, and I think that we would, we would be much more disposed to be on board with it but then it goes on for another three and a half hours what do you think do you think it's got a uh, does it have a, a future on broadway is are people are people gonna go see this do you think is I, it, I don't I know. really have no idea i i find the the price is a really big issue for a lot of people who will be on the fence the the combination of time requirement and price is the the price i mean i'm sorry i always sound like i'm stuck on prices but it's a really big problem well and the reviews have not had that that what? resonant unanimity that is what finally puts the capper on a big well, what is interesting fascinating to me is why was this show so universally acclaimed in london and here eh, not so much it's a very interesting thing what 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 did the brits seeing it that well, we're it's not. obviously telling them something that they want to hear presumably about America that's how I mean that's how these things mm. work I wouldn't pretend to say what it was but it's I don't think it's going to speak that way to domestic audiences I don't think but we'll find out very quickly right well uh, one thing here we've we've decided which is that uh, it's a it's a subject that stirs people up to talk about the theater so that's a good thing, and I'm sure uh, more people will weigh in and we'll be thinking more about uh, this play as the season goes on. But in the meantime, it's time for us to move on to today's guest. Joining us in our Manhattan studio is Alexandra Jacobs, author of Still Here, The Madcap, Nervy, Singular Life of Elaine Stritch, the first biography of one of Broadway's most celebrated musical comedy performers just out from Farrar Strauss. And uh, Alexandra is an editor and writer for the New York Times, and she's also written for the New Yorker, The Observer, and uh, Entertainment Weekly. Uh, thanks for being here. Thanks for, for having walking me. Walking the what, like four blocks? Yes, it was from... really not. It was past, uh, you know, the donut shop. <laughs> 
Sorry, I didn't bring any donuts. That's that's all we need to know. So I guess we should get started with like what in heck prompted you to pick Elin Stritch? I am not a spiritual person at all. Um, however, I, I feel like Elaine Stritch picked me. Hmm. I don't know exactly what happened. All I can tell you is that I was um, I had been a fashion critic. I, I had done a stint as a fashion critic at the New York Times. It was a it was a terrible experience for me. Um, yeah, I know. And my husband was like, "Crying me a river." You went to you know London, Milan, Paris, but it was so wrong. It was so 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 wrong. It was a terrible terrible fit. And I was coming home from Paris on a plane. <laughs> And um, the that documentary uh, Six by Sondheim, directed by James Lapine, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, came on the the and I you know the thing is I grew up in New York and Sondheim was part of the wallpaper of my life you mm. know my parents were musicians and hmm. I was taken to. Well, my father was a psychiatrist, but we can return to that. But anyway, um, my mother was a professional musician. And really? You know, like in orchestras? Yes, yeah, she was in the Halle Orchestra and the and the London Philharmonic. She played viola. Wow. She made me play viola. I did all that stuff. I did You're piano. You're a violist too. I, I'm a lapsed. It's one of us. Wow. I am yeah. also. A I'm impressed. I mean, there are many of us. I'm yeah. impressed. Yeah. We know all the jokes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I knew she taken me to Sunday in the Park with George, and I knew the the long. Of course, you know, I knew West Side Story. I knew, mm -hmm. but I. Had not seen him in that close-up way where you sort of see the arc of how important he is. Mm, and I was, yeah, that's right. Mm. And I was very much in. So I, I see. There's a clip in that documentary of um, the Pennebaker documentary of Co company. company. The, sound, the, the making of right. company. Yeah. That's right. And she comes on, right. and she. I think it actually was not Lazy Lunch. It was, which is the famous clip right. of that thing. It was um, the little things you mm. do, do together. together. And I, I was like. That's Elaine Stritch. Mm. That's the woman who was in at Liberty. That show that my cousin Carol was involved in at the Public. Right. Oh, so and you had already seen it. Carol Feynman. Well, she's talking I, so about. yeah, Carol Feynman is my cousin, and she was, I Publicist. believe, she was the general she press was. representative. Yes. A very, but you know, in a way, even more important than that. Sound. She was very much because it had been done at the Public. That's first. Right. right. George C. Wolfe directed. Uh, 2001. John White wrote that's it. right. 2001. Yes. That's right. Or or co-wrote it. There's co -wrote you know. It. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> and and then it moved to Broadway. Anyway, I, I at the time I was aware of that show and I knew what a big a big splash it had made. Um, and I didn't I didn't understand I didn't put two and two together until that moment. And wow. so it was a very rapid education because Elaine had died. That my father had died in June of 2014. Mm. Elaine had died in. July of 2014, so I was feeling fragile. Um, Elaine's memorial, I, I, I became immediately obsessed with everything Sondheim's ever written and done, and especially company. And I, I think I watched the Pennebaker documentary, you know, as one does a hundred times. Mm. And then the memorial service was announced, and, and I said, Carol, can you get me? You know, can you get me in there? And so she did, and I went, and then the lawyer. Her, Elaine's lawyer um, got up on stage and said, oh, if anyone's interested in her papers, they're at the New York Public Library. Wow. He said very casually, right, right. sort of Talk a throwaway. Talk about an open and, invitation. Well, I know. I know. And then a few days later, with trembling hand, I, I looked him up in the white pages and I called him and he said, oh you come God. to the right place. So had, you, had you ever thought of writing a biography before that? Yes, a biography. Made, definitely a book. I wanted to write a book. And mm -hmm. I never... I. I I'd gone. I'd started and stopped various uh, proposals, and nothing had ever gone anywhere. And I remember crying to a friend. You know, again, it was after my father died. I said, "I haven't written a book yet. I'm never going to." I said, "I said I'd had something going about retail disruptors, or just something. I'd, you know, I'd written about I, Zappos, I and I'd written yeah. about Spanx. And I was like, I'll write a book, and each chapter will be a different retail disruptor. And then I'm on the phone, and I'm oh my god, I know. And I'm and I said to my friend, I don't want to write a cold book. I want to write right, a warm right, book. Right, you know, right. retail blah, blah. disruptors. Oh my god, I know, this horrible. is like sending chills." How hard a sell was it? It was an incredibly easy sell because so I had lunch with um, Elaine's lawyer, who um, you know was a lovely man, <laughs> and um, and he you know old school lawyer, and um, we got along, and um, I knew that I, I the proposal you know I one of 
my editors, the, actually Peter Kaplan, to whom the book mm-hmm. is dedicated, along with my father. He's or no, you know, maybe it wasn't Peter Kaplan. Maybe one. It was one of his, um, one of his henchmen or, or minions. But <laughs> that 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 person said it's it's when I was struggling with some future idea. He said, you know, it's much easier to write about a person than an idea. Mm. Mm. Like you can bring in the ideas, but you know, and that and that is true. I found that to be true. You write a profile. You can bring ideas in. It's I, I find it harder to, to track a, an right. idea. And the only way to learn how to write a biography is to write one. That's right. Had you ever, you never met her? I'd never met her, and that was an, an enormous, you know, when you, uh, roadblock's the wrong word, but it was like a, a, a it was like a thing dragging me down mm. where that people were like, did, you know, that's the first question everyone asked in the beginning. And there, there was a tremendous sense of why you? Right. Why you? Right. Like right. everybody right. knew her. Right. right. Everybody right. knew her. Right. Why are you doing this? Right. And I thought, well, no one else is d- doing it. Right. right. And also, um, then the, the same friend who I cried to about the, you know, warm, not cold, uh, she said everyone knew her. So it's kind of better that you don't. Right. Mm. I think that's right. A, I, I agree. Yeah. Um, I spent a night with her on the stage. <gasps> oh, ha- but I'll tell you about that. No, later. I want to hear. No, what? no, immediately. You <laughs> no, can't no, just no. drop that. No, I, I that was after a performance of At Liberty. They'd asked yeah. me to do a talk back with her oh on the God. stage, uh, and I did it. It was uh, one of the more interesting experiences I've had with someone who was so neurotic. I mean, she was so hyper neurotic and uh, dictatorial. I was going to say, and who was terrifying, doing the talking back? Terrorizing <laughs> everyone backstage. Had all kinds of needs for. I think she was a diabetic. Yeah, she was, she was a yeah, diabetic. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and she had all kinds of you know demands of the staff uh, that really uh, made it more of an effort and an ordeal than it had to be. But of course, when she went on the stage, she was magnificent. Yeah. Uh, Did she seem fearful when you were talking to her? Fearful? Uh, no. I mean, uh, I went, that was well. That's interesting. When we went on stage, I remember very vividly. She grabbed hold of my arm and held me really tightly. Mm-hmm which was not my experience with other uh, celebrity actors who I'd done this with. So she, there was a kind of endearing kind of fragility, vulnerability to her, yeah. which I recognized in your, your fabulous biography. Oh, thank right. you. Thank you. But anyway. Using more, that adjective that I'll extract. Please do so. Absolutely. <laughs> so um, how quickly, once you got the contract, how quickly did it start to come together? How did you go about the job of, a, of telling this, the story of this extraordinary actress's life? Well, so, so and just to go back to how quickly did it sell or whatever your wonderful mm-hmm. question was, because it was interesting to see, um, the bidding was sort of fast and furious. I mean, you know, there was a ceiling to it. It wasn't like a million dollars, but... but but it more was, than one were interested. There was there was someone at sort of every ho- house. I knew wow. they were really bidding on her, not me, because I was unproven. Mm. You know, it's interesting. If I may interrupt, yeah. it's interesting because like I think one of the things we always hear about uh, theater books is that they don't sell. That right. there's no interest. Right. That's the thing. If you're trying and to sell I, a theater book to an agent, usually like ah, oh, it's theater. Good I luck. Also so it's very encouraging to hear might that. Be short. Yeah, no, that's right. And I was, and they originally said, you know, the expectation was I would deliver it in two years, or something. Yeah. But, but I, I, I'm digressing from what you asked, which I want to return to. But we have found that is not so. For example, with the 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 co-op spoof, or you know, I mean, yeah. Somehow she endures, and also because because well, thank goodness Sondheim endures, um, Mm. and you know. her associates have en- have endured, uh, but I also think she is a figure who kind of uh, transcends. Well, but what's interesting yeah. too is that if you think of like the great Broadway stars, people usually will say, Bernadette Peters, Patti Lupone. She, she's not that. No, she's she not. She does not have. It's not like she has like one great role she's associated with. She has a couple of great songs. It's not even an entire part. So what's amazing is like she never had a huge Broadway hit. Never. Yeah. Like it's yeah. it's it's this beloved cult figure, uh, this actors actors who somehow manage through sheer force of will and complete neuroticism and and character, I guess, to transcend this kind of box yeah I guess no absolutely that That was one of the the, there were so many sort of puzzles to putting it together but one was and one of the the 
I mean, as with any theater book or any theater biography, you really don't want it to be like a catalog of shows, you know, right. and then right. she appeared right. in, uh, and right. then like, you're facing the program with the list of people you have to call, <laughs> right. and you're just, uh, but, but she felt transcendent in some way, and right. I, couldn't, I couldn't quite figure it out at first, and I may not have ever, but there, it seemed to me that there were things about her, like that she, well, first of all, she had this consistency in her persona over <laughs> all these years, right. which yes. was extraordinary to me, right. that she, right. you know, she was back there saying, fuck, Right, the, right. If I may, yeah, oh, at least you know, do. No, but you know, she was back there right. cussing up a storm in the '40s and later. There's something about I, I kept, even though I, she didn't personally tweet. I think her her documentarian tweeted for her. But the <laughs> fact that Elaine Stritch translated to Twitter mm. was very interesting to me because, and she, you know, There's telegrams and Twitter are very similar. And 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 then the, and then the sort of gender presentation and her kind of you know her and her oddness like basically for lack of a better word I think her queerness before mm-hmm. again before that word became a mm-hmm. but just sort of her being not quite people couldn't quite she, you know she couldn't be an ingenue she couldn't right. fit into the sort of buxom blonde she was a buxom blonde but she couldn't fit into that mold and I just think figures like that are really interesting. Well, I think that too. This is what struck me reading your book. I had not really grasped the arc of the career and mm, then right. you have this very striking quote that she said uh, she says theater is an escape cabaret I'm right here with you I like the fact that I can do anything I want I think I've always wanted to do anything that I wanted and it hadn't hit me until I read that she had a career arc where everything didn't come together until the mm. very end of her life that's right and right. then suddenly at in her 80s she found the right thing to be doing. Yeah. And it was as though the key finally turned. She also right. had this amazing ability to seem like she didn't give a flying fuck. <laughs> and she cared. She cared deeply. Right. That need was so deep. The combination is so, so seductive. Yeah, yeah. And so singular. Mm-hmm. So few actors really ever achieve that kind of sense of danger in the moment. Right. You're not sure what's going to happen, even though you know it's going to be fun. Yeah. And she could do that. She yeah. could just pull that off. And Though she, a lot of this, I'm sure, has to do with the fact that she was a full-blown alcoholic. And therefore, the, the unpredictability is baked into the cake for much of her career. Was she a full-blown alcoholic? You know, I, she sure acts like it. Yeah. Well, what do you think, Alexander? Well, I mean, is, what I, mean, you're the one I know. I wrestled with it because I, I wrestled even with you know you had I, I to go back to what you asked before. Right. Um, the, you know, the approach and what I mean. Some of it was fan, those papers were fantastic. No one. It mm. was every journalist, biographers, any. So I, I think we need to clarify. Oh, the, yeah. For people who are gonna rush and buy the book but haven't read it yet, so you had a so she worked for years and years on. An autobiography, right? Yes. That was never published, but she had all these papers. She had all these papers, and the, the actual the um, the the pages of that bi- of that autobiography were there weren't that many of them. You know, it wasn't oh, okay. like this kind of thing where right. I found a manuscript in it. <laughs> if right. I had, I could have saved a lot of trouble. <laughs> right. Um, but no, it, it, but it was it was like these attempts, you know, right. and it, right. and 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 what you saw was her beginning to refine. First of all, it was wonderful because it it helped me with a little bit of. Fact checking is the wrong word, but you know there's a lot in 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 at liberty that's embellished or polished, and sure. you 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 kind of you sort of start to see what are the stories she start she's telling from the very beginning, and then what are the ones that kind of come later, mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. But no, there were there were papers, there were telegrams, there were letters. Um, there was an incredible amount of material. Mm-hmm. Um, I ran into exactly that issue when I was writing about Louis Armstrong, because he was a public figure for much of his life, and he was a storyteller. And you could see the set pieces when they first start to get told. Then they begin to take shape. They begin to become refined. And then for the last 10 to 15 years of his life, he's playing the tape. That's right. Mm -hmm. So like with JFK, uh, you know, there's a picture of her at the store club in her papers. She was definitely hanging out with JFK in the 40s. And then I found someone who, you know, described how her mother and Elaine had hung out with the Kennedy brothers. Did, you know, did he invite her up for a chafing dish of whatever, scrambled eggs or whatever? I don't, I don't know about that, you know, yeah. She, she liked the limelight. I mean, she loved it. She yes. really did. Yes. I mean, some actors don't. 
Right. No, she obviously, she created by the end a, a stage persona, an onstage and offstage persona that were somewhat consistent so that, you know, she would walk through the streets of New York without her pants or whatever. And, <laughs> And people would recognize her, and and the character on Thirty Rock, you know. Again, I mean, that was probably the part that I, um, well, I mean, it's, <laughs> when I got when I got there, I was a little bit exhausted for one thing, but also I felt no, I felt that the Thirty Rock years had been very, very thoroughly covered, and that was mm-hmm. that was not. It wasn't that I was There's, completely uninterested, right. but I, I just felt like that wasn't my task here. What do you think her great contribution was? Um, to American society? To, 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 to entertainment. <laughs> okay. yeah. Um, yeah. I think it was uh, authenticity mm. before that was labeled as such. I mean, I just feel like she she couldn't help. And, you know, another thing she had before people talked called it this was no filter. Mm. She just was direct. She was really... Um, uh, she wasn't always right, and she wasn't always clear on her thinking, but um, I think there was a real immediacy about an, an, a, an honesty in directness. You know, like, I, I hope that makes sense. I, yeah, I, um, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> but but if you are does. not talking about a performer, you're talking right. about a person. Right. Yes. But, yeah. And that's very so what was her contribution to culture? What, like, mm. what is her importance? What is the... Um, I mean, well, I mean... Her, I think, I mean, her, her, it's funny because if you'd, and you know, Sondheim, of course, was the most complicated part of this whole endeavor because I was completely enraptured with him. He was, right. is of a, course. you know, he was of godlike course. to me. And it was, I'm sure there was all this stuff going on with my father and Peter Kaplan and Sondheim, and I was making him decide. <laughs> anyway, that he did, certainly wouldn't want or didn't want. Um, but I think her, I mean, I think if, if nothing else, her contribution is that she made the song Ladies Who Lunch happen and was it's, you know, I mean, she is, that that is. Isn't that extraordinary that you can have that impact? Yes. You can create a, around one song. Yeah. One song can make you it, it indelible. Mortal. Yeah, and absolutely. And the way you know it. And no one else can do it. Yeah, In every right. revival of company, people either sing it like her or they're trying not to sing that's it right. like her. That's right, that's exactly but right. But it's a two-position switch. Right. That's right. And the other, I mean, and one of the things, one of my more productive conversations with Sondheim um, <laughs> was, you know, just sort of about, I, I, the most exciting discovery for me in of the book was that she, and, and I found this not in her papers, but in George First's papers, the librettist right. company sure. um, was that librettist is a fancy word, <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know the book writing, right? I, in his notes, there was very clear uh, evidence that he, her her ideas had been mined for the show. I he, was so struck mm-hmm. by that. I, when I read that, I thought she's digging. That's I'm great. I'm so right. happy that you it, because I'm telling you, when I saw that, I scre- I practically screamed, and there were there were several moments like that when I screamed, yeah. but <laughs> but um, but I just I couldn't. I, there was actually a line that said, "Take." It, well, maybe it didn't say take, but it was like the Elaine Stritch idea of da da da, and it was about a single person. Um, you know, the idea that someone who didn't really want to have a, a partnership or domesticity would walk into another person's house and t- wear their clothes and use eat their food and just like live their lives and not have to deal with any of that stuff. And I just thought, what a metaphor for acting, what a, for, a metaphor for the individual, what a, mm-hmm. a, a brave and radical thing for a woman at mm. that time who was clearly spo- expected to have kids and get married. And... Um, and it was, and also just what what an something she should be acknowledged for because that really was a boys club that when I, yeah, when I was when I was fourteen years 13, 14 years old I took a bus in from New Jersey I I bought a standing room ticket with my friend Neil Mulberger to see Company oh my god and I stood in the back with the original cast except for I think Dean Jones had left by then it was yeah. like he left pretty quickly yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and I think it was Larry Kurt must have been mm-hmm. Larry Kurt and when. Elaine Stritch came on, even in the little things you do together, I remember thinking, oh, this is what grown-ups are like. That's right. (laughs) This is what being a grown-up means. It's like sort of this sort of vinegary, gin-laced, acidic personality and kind of like, you know, carnivorous. It's not easy, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and I, but it was like so, she seems so sophisticated to me. Right. And you feel that it is her. With the other characters in the original cast, 
you don't necessarily think that that person is is right the right person the same person but with her at least i always felt from the first time i heard the original cast album that there was no there was no wall between elaine stritch well, and the character she was playing. L- D- D- and Lorraine we, Birch. And we, yeah, and George Firth, one of the plays, had yeah. Lorraine Birch in it. I mean, <laughs> <Yeah>. come on. <laughs> I, I love that that thing. One of the things that made me laugh out loud is <laughs> that she was nicknamed Stritchnine. Oh, yeah, that's good. That right. Only so the British good. would come up with, I can say that. Stritchnine. Yeah. <laughs> was it easy to get um, Sondheim to talk about her? Um, it, it, let's put it this way. He, it, 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 was, it was easy to get the first interview. Um, he, it was a, the first interview was a phone interview, and he was absolutely wonderful. And you know, it was, so smart. but it, and it was what it was one of those things, of course, where I think you know there was an appointed hour that right. he was supposed to call, and I was sitting by the phone. And I, I, I have to say that everything about my interactions with him, and this is not his fault, but everything about it reminds me of you know like love and heartbreak in high school <laughs> or, or college. You know, just that kind of experience of like right. being so, so you know, you're waiting by the phone, yeah, you're waiting right, by right. the phone, and then and then the, the call comes and the person's completely with you and you get you just get along so great and he's so attentive and he's so smart and he's mm. saying things you've never heard before from right, anyone and right. they haven't been printed before and he right. knows exactly what you need and he gives it to you and then he, then, then you, you know, you say goodbye, maybe you say goodbye a little sooner than you're ready because you don't want to bore him and you don't want to be, and then he goes oh, away. Know how that feels. Yeah. Yeah. We yeah. all do. Yeah, yeah, we all do. And then he goes away. And then, you know, I interviewed him very early uh, because I, I wanted to interview all the important people. Mm-hmm. Who, so, quick, right. You know, him, Hal Prince, sure. Liz Smith, wanted of to check those off the list. Smart. Of course, when I did that, I didn't know as much as I did one or two years right. in. Well, that's the so thing. then I go right. to England. My uncle's in England. He, he also has theatrical, different side of the family. And... Um, <laughs> I, I, I went to the Noel Coward room and I read these incredible letters, which was another mm. scream moment when I'm oh, seeing things really good that, stuff with Noel Oh my Coward. God, like, well, the anyone can whistle. We've heard that before. I mean, I think Elaine casually told, I think she told Alex Witchell actually, of, you know, being upset that she wasn't, that she had turned down anyone can whistle. But there's the letter in real time where she says, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to do the part that Stevie Sondheim and Arthur Lawrence <laughs> yeah. want me to do. You know, it's, uh, you know, no real big boffo songs or, so, you know, or whatever oh, what she said. You know, so, so I screamed at that, and then I could go back to Sondheim, and, and you know, then we, we did a little fact-checking, and it, that, that wasn't as, as good a conversation as the first, and I thought, you know, maybe he gave me everything he right. had to give. Like, right. I, but then, <laughs> then came... Mm. Um, the announcement, another scream, that there was going to be a gender switch version of company. Oh, right. Mm. Which brings us So that happened toward the very end of my research, and I screamed, and I went to Scott Heller, the theater editor, and I said, you have to let me write about this. I know I'm not the beat reporter. I know I'm nobody, <laughs> but just let me go. Right. And he very kindly did. And um, and I, of course, tried to contact Sondheim for that, and he wouldn't he wouldn't talk to the Times for that, I think, because he'd made promises to the British papers because it was mm-hmm. an English show. Sure. But then there was some event, we had, there was some misunderstanding. He appeared in an event, I think, in St. Louis, and someone said, why didn't you talk to the New York Times? He said, I did, you know, whatever. And there was a mix-up <laughs> and a confusion, and I was able to email him and say, look, you know, and I just laid it all on the line, and I said, you, you, you know, um, <laughs> there's nothing I would like more than to, then to go over this with you and da, da, da. so then I finally got to see him and that was you know that was the high point mm. but then I started having to you know get permissions for lyrics and stuff and then it became oh. difficult oh, again. I and then finally it was just like a very terrible how complicated was she um how complicated Is she was she a happy person um, you think she ooh. yeah that's tricky that's a good question um I think she was a jolly person mm. sometimes oh you know, Boy, that word lands. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think she was. Um, I, I, she's. I think she certainly had had some pleasure. I mean, I, I feel, I, I under, I don't, I can't pretend to know her, obviously, <laughs> sure, of but course. I feel I understand her. I yeah, feel no. that that you know that that same friend, the warm book, you know, you didn't know her. Everyone knew her. Friend said, "You're you're a little bit alike." Like I think it's it's the understanding of this sort of of anxiety. She was anxious, mm. and there's like a there's like an energy yes, in anxiety. It's right. very exciting. Well, you you mentioned she had. The quote is like you mentioned she had plenty of unsolvable agita. 
Yes. Mm. This kind of thing that was already always Yeah, it's always like there's on. that uh, and that's the thing yeah. that the drink calms. Right. And yeah. also right. but but the thing about drink is that for the most part unless you're really drinking way too much, which you know, she didn't do all the time. I mean, sometimes she was just drinking like they drank in the 50s and 60s and 70s, but you know, then sometimes she took it too far, but but the drinking then takes you to a different mm. whatever. I mean, it's it's literally intoxicating. It's sure. um so well there are different ways to be an alcoholic yes and that's I, right the, to me the sentence in your book that leaped off the page when i read it I, it's the most striking thing in there was when you write drink was her only constant companion her steady escort her abusive husband and i thought i just really that's pretty strong about her. But also, of course, that's a way of being an alcoholic. Yes. Yeah. I, I don't think I'm qualified. Even with the research I did into alcoholism and I attended some meetings and, you know, I really tried to understand it. I don't think I can clinically diagnose it. I don't think she, I mean, she was someone who had to be put to bed. She was someone who was, she, uh, her doctor said, look, you know, when it interferes with your life. I, the thing is, when the diabetes was interesting because I think that actually, it, it, I mean, she had periods of sobriety, but also the diabetes meant she had to be quite controlled yeah. about it right. until the end. Did, did right. the career, at, I mean, Elizabeth mentioned this, you know, the career, it, 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 it's bits and pieces of some very wonderful things. The I saw her in a delicate balance. I saw mm -hmm. her as Parthi in um, Showboat. In Showboat. Yeah. You know, and, and always distinctive, always singular, always making an impact. Was there something that didn't gel for her? Do you think was it her own? Did she thwart herself? Was it an un I, inability to sort of def did define? Did she thwart what? herself, or did the playwrights not come up with? I mean, I just feel she wasn't a leading lady right, in right. the way that leading ladies. I mean, leading ladies. She wasn't just, an right. actor. She was. Yeah, a she was. Maybe she wasn't an actor. She yeah. was a performer. Well, yeah. The, Although I, I wrote something like that, and then I got, I got an angry letter from someone who had, who had, uh, you know, a, a trained, studied academic. <laughs> Right. Person who you know wanted to emphasize how much craft went into yeah, but that doesn't. Craft. But it's yeah. still a different. Yeah, she thing. was always herself. Yeah. Uh, but I think I think uh, not to be too grandiose about it, but I think just I think society sort of failed her. She didn't. She would have been a great director. Hmm. She that you wasn't, mentioned yeah. one time yeah. when she wanted was it Private Lives that she I, was. I, I, right. I, I, be I believe she did want to do it because the either director quit or something or she had big ideas about it. But there was also there was a there was an actual play in the fifties that she had a plan or early sixties she had a plan to direct and it just fell through. Um, she would have been a great. She actually did direct for Judy Abrams. She did the Pixie Judy shows. But you know she could have done that and she could have she could have written. But she as as Sanam and I discussed she wasn't she didn't have a traditional education. Education mm. with the you know certain, I mean she had a Catholic schoolgirl education. She got out of there as soon as she could. So she doesn't seem to have been self-conscious about the lack of it, though, was she? Um, no, I don't think so. I just don't think there was that kind of uh, scholarly discipline of l the way you learn to compose or to to write or to you know to really sit down, buckle, and do your homework. She she did learn her lines for sure. You know, who I'm th you know what makes me think of, and who's, who was much more successful because she had a voice, was Streisand, oh, who yeah. had the same sort of neurosis, this itchiness, this restlessness. And also these, this look, which this is look. not the look that everybody, right. you know. But she had that instrument yeah. that really yeah. sort of centered everything. She could, that could drive everything until the point that she sort of, not resented it, but felt like that she had other things to offer. Stritch didn't have that, and yet, was a musical theater star. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's... Go figure. Yeah. Go figure. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I really enjoyed about the book is that there's this weird through line uh, in terms of career between her and Angela Lansbury. Yes. It's yeah. like, it's oh, like, yeah. it's like Elaine right. Stritch career is like the bizarro well, career. Whistle is it's a the bizarro example. career of Angela Lansbury's. And she that pops fixated. up yeah. all the time. Yeah. Angela Lansbury got all the parts that Elaine Stritch it's a lot of coulda, shoulda. Mama Rose, right. man. Yeah. Oh, that was Mama, the one. You know, yeah. everything. So when you taught Mama Rose, starting yeah. from anyone who can whistle, oh my God, I should have done that instead of Time of the Barracudas. And she had the extremely lucrative role in a, in a long-running yes. syndicated sitcom. Uh, because not sitcom. one yeah. of the great things I didn't know Jenna, is that she, Elaine Stritch, had auditioned for Golden Girls. Can you imagine? I mean, yeah. that I is just... I laughed so hard when I read that page. 
that she tried that she was the, yeah the thought of her even having thought that okay. she might well, want to Arthur's do it. the other this the is my single is yeah, this is my sort of. single favorite line in the book she's auditioning for <laughs> for golden girls and as you just said she had a catholic education which she kind of stayed with like throughout her life she, yes. you know and, and she has some issues with the dialogue and she says i'm catholic so i don't want to say oh god how about what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. I love yeah. this. But yeah. okay, this, yeah. the, um, I actually I interviewed her around when at Liberty was the public, mm. and my first question I actually reread the transcript today. Did I was I, like, did what did, I did I she quote, say? Did I borrow from it? If I hope I attribute it properly. If I did, no, no, no. no, no, no but I was reading the transcript. Oh, yeah, I yeah. mean, it was for them. So like the transcript was like ten times longer than what ended yeah, up in, yeah, yeah. in print. But my first question was, and I have to say, I was terrified when I did that interview. I was really, really scared. My first question was like, so what's the show about? And she said, well, it's about me. It's not about Angela Lansbury's life. That's the first That's line. That's so hilarious. She wow. brought she it really up. bothered right. her. Yeah, yeah it was she brought really it was like the, the first thing she nemesis. said. Well, it's about me, not Angela Lansbury. First thing she said. See, I think that is partly. I, I mean, love I think it's at that. least in part about in the book too. You know, it's right. about it's about having it's about maintaining this artistic relationship. That's she really wished for a sustained relationship with mm -hmm. Sondheim, and that that you know that I, that didn't happen quite as much. I mean, I'm sure they had some kind of relationship, but it wasn't a sustained. Art, it didn't seem right. to be a sustained artistic relationship other than that song and the one in Follies which was also another scream moment until I realized that Ted Chapin had already sort of done it. But, but you know, when Sondheim told me that I Talking said, about the Follies book he wrote. Yes, Ted Chapin yeah, that's right. Thank you. Um, but mm. but I, I told him, he said, what are you going to call the book? And I said, well, I'm thinking of calling it Still Here. The other mm. title I considered was Why Not. But, no, um, I think you yeah, Still Here was better. But I said, I feel kind of funny because, you know, it's your song and I'm not, you know, I'm not, it's, it's actually, <laughs> as Jesse Green reminded me, it's I'm Still Here, not Still Here. Oh, for God's sake. But, but so. you know, that's also a very, that's a very stretch thing to do would be also to, to slightly mangle whatever she yes. was singing. Was, <laughs> yes. Um, but, you know, and he said, that's okay. And then he said, you know, that song, that song was sort of inspired by her or whatever. And then I had to go back and look and he, you know, what he meant was, it was like there was a situation. It wasn't still here yet. It was, can that boy Foxtrot? Oh yeah. And right. so that that's the situation that inspired, can that boy Foxtrot was Sondheim and Stritch sitting at the piano late at mm. night, you know, at 3 a.m. and and sing, and him playing the piano and her singing. That's a beautiful and to me, that, I mean, I just, you know, I, I just thought, and, and he, you know, he, he was very clear. He said, that's our relationship. And I thought that is, you know, I mean, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then, I loved her. I loved when I saw it. Liberty. I still remember her, her version of Zip, which I had not seen the first, obviously in Pell Joey, you know, her do it. But Zip, that was mm -hmm. an amazing number. I assume yeah. you you must have watched a lot oh of her gosh, on yes. tape and stuff. Yes. Well, YouTube was a wonderful resource for for this stuff because there are clips and there are um, and, and you know and, and there were family members still alive. Her family, her nieces and nephews are almost all alive, and they they were wonderful. And that whole family, I mean, I just felt like I could I could stay there and write a novel about that family because e mm. each member of that family is as interesting as she is. Did you see Endgame? No, the one in Bam. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I didn't see it. I was not, at that point in, I mean, 2008, was it? Um, she, this is the one where she's in a garbage can? Right. Yeah, yeah. no, I didn't see it. I, I, because it, that's <laughs> the only time I saw her do anything like that. I saw her replace in A Little Night Music, and I saw the, oh, right. I saw the cabaret show that. and all of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I also saw her do Endgame, that's, which is a very yeah. hard role. Yeah. And I looked up my review, and I didn't go into any special detail about it because it was just right. Yeah. What she did was, I, here I am just a few minutes ago, I said, well, she's not an actress, she's a performer. That was acting. One of the, I found it fascinating at the end of her life, you know, she was so New York. My mother, my mother, my wife once was at God. <laughs> my wife, sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah. My wife was at Saks. We're not cutting that either. My wife was at Saks. Yeah, no, that was Freudian. Thank you very much. Val, don't listen to this. She was at Saks once, and then Lane Stritch was there making a scene because she wanted her hair cut to be comped. Right. I mean, she had this kind of crazy sort yeah, of New yeah, York yeah. persona, but she was so New York. And I remember when she moved back to Michigan, I thought it so mysterious, and I don't know if it was all illness related. When she basically. Why did she move back to Birmingham? Yeah. 
Well, well tell people I, why. I, I, I pried into that a little because I thought, you know, oh, did the Carlisle kick her out? You know, I just thought... It's because she, she notoriously also, for, for listeners, she notoriously lived in hotels. That's Not right. always, but a lot. Yes, like, no, that, that, long, that's right. She... Yeah. Um, that, that's right. She absolutely she absolutely preferred hotels, and I you know I strained for all these metaphors with the the, the sheets and the blank page and the daily you know the fresh <laughs> the fresh audience every day. And anyway, but no, but the, the why did she leave the car? I mean, I think honestly it was it was because she um, she became too infirm to perform, mm. and and there was something to their financial arrangement where when she was performing she wasn't paying. Mm. So if she was going to have to pay, and, but but you know of course also she wanted to perform. Mm. So if if she couldn't perform for. New New York, then I don't think she, she wanted to be a New Yorker. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I took it for granted when I heard she moved. I thought she'll die soon. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. She won't out. be in the right place anymore. That's right. Yeah. What do you see in your mind's eye when you think of her? I see black tights. I, I, I see, I mean, wow, I see a, no, I see a kaleidoscope. I really do. I mean, it's, it's funny because she she did come to me in my in my dreams a, a couple times. Oh my um, god! Yeah, I know. Oh, that was, that's, it was like that I, I would I, I would never dreamed sit of bolt sexual. sit bolt upright. You know? yeah. <laughs> Just like yeah. But um, no, I mean I see I, I see her. I, I probably would see, actually, now, I'm, I'm gonna, I've, I've forgotten the name of the photographer. I think his name was also Steven, and that's why I blocked it. But he took. He took a number of the photographs on the Pennebaker set. He just did incredible, incredible photographs, and you know, she's really trying. It captures and still what Pennebaker did, and yeah. so I, I see her like that, you know, and laughing, laughing with Hal Prince, and just and happy. I think she was really, I think she was really happy, and I also think she was really happy when she did the Follies concert. Then I do think she was happy. Sure. That mm. was like, well, you know, that was the highest point. The Pennebaker film, I mean, it is her in miniature. Yeah. First disaster. Yes. And then a day later triumph. That's right. But also the. Um, the frustration of the other people. They were so fed up yeah. with her. I mean, there was, yeah, you Sondheim, could feel you could like, see the, yeah. you could feel the, and even here, mm -hmm. their, their, their almost contempt. Right, right. And uh, um, Thomas Shepard. Shepard, the most wonderful man. I mean, you know, he, he still feels guilty about it. And, you know, the most accomplished man, it really reminded me of my, my father, my parents, just the, the, his musicianship is just incredible. and. And you know he he feels terrible to this day because he feels like, uh, you know, it, he was a young, he felt he was he was arrogant to her or whatever. And he, he but just, you know that's why the film is so true because that's what it feels like when you're in a situation like that, and it doesn't matter how much you admire them if they're not delivering you hate them. That's right. But also, but was it that they also do it to her in some way to punish her because she was so so driven herself they it, it's almost like it feels like they don't do that to people anymore the way they treated her does that make sense no. she i felt I think like it was purely practical i don't know there, there was some song order and she took the later order yeah. because she wanted that and then she started drinking and then her voice was shy right. and she'd then, been drinking wine all through the session yeah, if i remember she, yeah. Correctly. and yeah. then you know and but she kept trying you know they want to get it right and of course they didn't want the musicians and they didn't have to but but hal prince thought she she staged the whole thing because right. he thought he thought right. she had to she had to stage it so that she was the star and that she would have her big comeback and and he he remarked more than once not just to me on the fact that she came back with hair and makeup and I thought that was so interesting and you know sort of this like male glimpse into the female psyche but it's correct where she really she was insecure about her looks mm. and she comes back and she's on and she's got her armor and she can do it mm. and as several people said uh, other than her in the film they knew this will last this is the only chance I'll have. Yeah. Maybe yeah. this is how people will remember me. And she must have known that too. Yeah, the four iPhones. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Alexandra, we're so glad you wrote this book. Yes. Oh, I'm it was so, so necessary. Happy. Thank it's you so, so much. And necessary doesn't really fill the whole description. It's really a wonderful read. And I'm going to say that I word that rhymes with Wurlitzer. <laughs> <laughs> Sort of. Oh my God! <laughs> I know that's not enough of a rhyme for Sondheim, but we can well, make it work. I hope yeah. that's hilarious. <laughs> consider writing Pulitzer another jury biography. Attention! <laughs> I hope that you will consider writing another biography. Oh, thank because you. Because this one's this is good, and and thank it's you. it's Dimitri, and uh, it's beautifully written. Yeah, it oh, really thank is you so much. beautifully You're written. Coming it's, from you, it comes alive. I actually did read it in a sitting. 
it comes alive. Thank you. The you know from the very first mm -hmm. I was uh, from the first pages. Great, she's still here, right? <laughs> yes, that's right. Still here, but let's hope not on the remainder table. And thank you for no. being thank oh. you for being here with us. Thank yeah, you a for pleasure. Me. Such a joy. So it's Thanks. the book is still here by Alexandra Jacobs, and uh, you can buy it everywhere. Especially on the Upper East Side where she used to live. <laughs> it makes a good present for your theatrical friends. Yes. yes. Good yes. time of As the year. As we reach this time, good of, time of the, of the year. year. Alexandra. Okay, this is a, a very first literary guest. It's very <gasps> high bar. Yes, exactly. Thank that you. we've just I'm said. and thrilled. Thank you. And uh, it's now time for the last segment, everybody's favorite. When we talk about shows we just saw. Uh, Terry, uh, what uh, what have you seen lately? Well, uh, we're being stagey. You know what I've seen lately because you were sitting one row ahead of me. Oh. Uh, Elizabeth and I were both at New York Signature Theater off Broadway, where we saw a major revival of Horton Foote's *The Young Man from Atlanta*. Uh, it's it's Hood is what Foote is one of my own favorite playwrights. He is best remembered as the author of The Trip to Bountiful. But this particular play actually won the 1995 Pulitzer Play for Drama, and it was what put Foot back on the map of American theater after a long hiatus when people weren't talking or thinking about him. And this is a play that has something in common with The Inheritance, too, because although it's, mm. it's carefully veiled, it also hinges on the subject of homosexuality. It's a play about... Uh, a married couple, um, he in his early 60s, she in her late 50s, uh, he's a businessman, they live in Houston, um, they have spent their money on living the kinds of lives that they wanted to lead, and suddenly uh, the money runs out, and they find themselves uh, at a very difficult moment of transition. Uh, they have lost their son, who apparently committed suicide and who we figure out, uh, without too much concealment, was himself a very closeted gay in 1950, where, of course, the stakes are But that different. word is never uttered. He, right, he, no. We just know he has a roommate. Mm. Yeah, yeah, but of course, mm -hmm. all, all the signals are clear for mm. anybody who knows anything about it. Mm. But this play, uh, as I say, it really got foot back where the action was after this long period when one of America's greatest playwrights was simply not recognized as such. It's very nice to have it back in New York now that we've had uh, uh, dividing the estate, now that we've had the orphan's home cycle, now that people realize that Horton Foote is a, a treasure of the American theater. And it's a damned good play that is receiving a damned good production. Uh, directed by Michael Wilson, who was Foote's protege, uh, uh, performed by a very tight ensemble cast uh, led by Christine Nielsen. And, uh, um, beautiful design, everything about it. It's, it is, there's nothing shocking about it. There's nothing unusual about it. The dramaturgy is completely conventional. It is a Horton Foot play, and you get completely swept up in this, this piece of storytelling about two people on the edge of old age mm. who have the props knocked out from under their lives. I found it extraordinarily moving. And, uh, uh, you know, in a better regulated theatrical society, this one would be on Broadway. Mm. I actually completely fully agree with, with, with all this. I adore Horton Foote. He's also one of my favorite. This may shock listeners, but I <gasps> absolutely adore Horton Foote. And I don't want to... I, I don't want to see him mangled. I, I want to see him the way Michael Wilson does him. Uh, uh, and... I, I fully agree. I mean, he has a way to write people who are... He, the thing with Horton Ford is that he loves all these characters, and they can do the stupidest thing. They can be pig-headed or right. just... Um, or, or mean, or but he always loves them. He never makes fun of them. There's a generosity that then extends to the audience. I saw... This was you on really Broadway. Uh, the yes. original yeah. production mm -hmm. was very good. All right, right, yeah. And I it, loved his play Dividing the Estate. Yeah. Remember, that was another good one. There's about, always... Wow. A, there's he's, very he's often very, an yeah. issue with people dealing with... with Financial yes, issues. Yes, very smart. Uh, this is the case here again, yeah, actually. It's uh, right, now and it, it's, it. it's a spin-off 
from a couple of the plays in the Orphan's right. Home cycle. Right, right. Take some of the characters that appear when they were much younger in that earlier cycle. But anyway, well, so. Horton Foote is as good writing about money as he is about mm -hmm. love. Mm. Of how many modern playwrights can that be said? So true. Right. No, he's he's great. He's really he's really one of the greats. So we commend we jointly commend this to your attention, Peter. I'm this gonna, is a good show. All right, I'm going to book it, man. What about you? Uh, well, I'm going to talk briefly about a, a really nice production of a play I completely sort of put on the sh filed on the shelf years ago, uh, Peter Schaffer's Amadeus. It's a modern masterpiece. Wow. Well, I'm not saying I didn't love it. I did, but I haven't seen it in 25 years. Right. I've seen it once since I've been I'm in I'm surprised it's I've not never done seen more it. often. I've never seen Why it. Why hasn't this been revived Too on many Broadway? Actors. Too many actors. It's well. This was done with ten actors in at the Folger in right. Washington, directed by Richard Clifford, who happens to be Derek Jacobi's uh, partner, and uh, Ian Merrill Peaks played uh, Salieri. Uh, everybody knows the story of um, yeah. Amadeus, uh, and he is one of the best actors working in classical theater in the country. I agree. And that means he doesn't work in New York because there's so little opportunity. Right. But he's a terrific, terrific actor. He does an amazing job. I think as good a job as McKellen did, who I saw on Broadway, or uh, F. Murray Abraham, who did it on, won an Oscar for it. And uh, the two actors playing Mozart and Mozart's girlfriend and wife, Constanza, uh, Samuel Adams and um, a young woman named Lily Hokama were equally good and gave a richness to their characters that really made it um, the three hours go very very quickly it's not a short play either and I was just I was just amazed at um, what can be done uh, the the um, even the set was an amazing looking set it was a a, a forest of, of violin strings which was a really Clever. interesting, yeah, it was that a really gorgeous. wonderful image for the play, and the costumes were just dazzling as well. Uh, just it, it really speaks to the best of what revival should do in terms of reminding you of great work, and you know, I think Schaffer's best play probably. I did not see the original stage version of Amadeus. The first time I saw it was 10 years ago when it was done by the Repertory Theater of St. Louis. Hmm. And I went, flew out there specifically to see how it worked on stage. Because, of course, Amadeus has been brilliantly filmed. Right. It's one of the most effective Foreman's films of a, of a play that's ever been made. And I came away feeling that uh, it's one of the best plays of the 70s. Right. And it, it, for me, it triggered a complete rethinking uh, of, of his work as a playwright. And I now think that He's by way of being an important playwright. He didn't do it that many times. And uh, once he you know, made his boodle and quit, um, I, I think basically it was that he said what he had to say because all of his plays right. are about inhibition and the problem of inhibition and the havoc that it right, wreaks on the human soul. But uh, in this play, that is, it's just done fabulously well. And I. When I saw that, that it had been announced at the Folger, I was desperate to get down there and see it. Yeah. And now I feel even more desperate. Yeah. Because no, I can't. no, no. It's a. It's a, it, it needs. You need to, and you need someone. Your Salieri has to be your Iago. You know, he has to be that sort of um, that sort of powerful, that kind of powerhouse. And I thought that Ian Merrill Peaks did that. Elizabeth, what about you? Well, I'm just going to uh, mention very, very briefly. I saw the uh, new Will Eno play uh -huh. uh, <laughs> no that was such an enthusiastic uh-huh uh, -huh. uh and, and i'm not by name uh it's called the underlying chris that's uh, a terrible a, name for a play oh all his plays have great names it actually works really well for this one because this one is about it follows the life of chris from literally oh. from cradle to grave but the and, it, and it's done in very short scenes uh, last 90 minutes, um, and the hook is that Chris uh, stands for either Christine or Christopher, and in each scene, Chris is played by a different actor of the different... Chris can be a man or a woman, Chris can be of any race, and he changes all the time. And it's... You have this history. You've been doing staged. a lot of these kind of plays, like that Alia Shakwat play that you went it's to. It's true. <laughs> this one is, you know, 90 minutes instead of 24 hours. So there's, right there, that's a lot less taxing. Uh, it's actually, it's probably his most accessible play. Mm. Oh, knows okay. most Yeah. Uh, it's often very funny, and it's staged oh. very fluidly by Kenny Leon. So you follow very well. You a always really know. really good director, Where's by the done? way. Yes, uh, at second stage. 
the off-Broadway uh, signal yeah. stage. Oh, okay, now I'm uh, interested. It's very interesting. And, and what's interesting about Chris is that there's things that, so he always has, you know, he or she, Chris, always has the same job, for instance. So it's very consistent. Mm. It is the same person. Got it. Hence the underlying Chris. Got it. But I, I was at the end. I was thinking, like, what, what is it trying to say? Is it, is this trying to say that there is a core personality, mm-hmm. regardless of race of gender? Right. I really don't. I mean, of course, it's unprovable. Right. But it's, it's a very interesting thing to think about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, um, I'm uh, now I'm. And intrigued. it's very expertly. Uh, 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 acted, oh, all right. uh, and you always you always know. You know, Chris, for instance, has back problems, which kind of pop up very, very subtly. They don't make a big deal out of it, but there's elements that make you think, "Oh, yeah, that that is Chris." You always know who Chris is, even though Chris looks completely different from scene to scene. I have not liked his work. You pique my curiosity, and Kenny Leon is one of those directors who, as a friend of mine likes to say, always delivers the mail. He serves. It's... He has no consistent production or production style he just serves the show with I, great clarity I, I very much, is that good i, I am almost I think a, a good thing yeah i'm almost not i'm it's not a, a will you know you know yeah i've seen some really good things by but Kenny this is a very intriguing show mm. i thought for sure you were going to want to talk about a play that's at st anne's uh warehouse called oh, uh history, history of, of violence, violence by our boy with, uh, thomas Ostabio, but maybe we'll have to do that at a later show <laughs> yes now, oh yeah, my god i'm surprised oh that's actually. right because there was a yeah that's right there's something actually that but we we could say that for a later podcast okay. because there's actually a bigger issue yes about this play that we will talk yeah, about yeah, yeah. Um, i agree but that, in the meantime We've all got to get to the theaters, (laughs) so we'll have something to talk about on our next podcast. So until then, I'm Terry Teachout. I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli. And I'm Peter Marks. Our producer is the intrepid Erica Huang. You can follow us on Twitter at 3 on the Isle and write to us at 3 on the Isle at gmail.com. Spelled out. Yes, we've said for 41 episodes. Well, Spell it out. And we're going to do it until I get it right. Yeah. 150,000. Sorry, I'm sorry. That was, I apologize for my outburst. You're meant to be a pro. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, okay, well, do let us know uh, how great we are. That's it. That's the one option <laughs> oh, you have. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Please let us know how great we are, Elizabeth. So you can give us a four and a half rating or a five star rating. No four and a half? What do you mean? That's like... On well, that's right. That, that's that, just that in case. I'm, give, I'm giving them options. No, the no, options are four no, and a half like or five. five. Okay, so give us a five star rating. That's what you say. Okay, okay so sorry. In okay. the meantime, do on keep... iTunes or wherever you <laughs> listen to us. Do keep tuning us in on your podcast dial. We will be with you again soon on the aisle.